Hello, woman beings, and welcome to our current episode that we are listening to right now. Um, <laughs> I'm excited because we have an amazing guest with us today, Annalise Pierce, and she is brilliant and dedicated local journalist um, who also founded Shasta Scout, which is a local news media organization in our area. And um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about Shasta Scout? Yeah. So Shasta Scout is brand new. We just launched this year in Shasta County, and we are hyper-local. We, we pretty much cover the Shasta County area. We're independent, so we're um, not owned by any big news media corporation, and we're not nonprofit. So that's really important to us that we exist for the public good. Amazing. And so Annalise has been telling us all about, you know, learning to educate the community and help, um, yeah, foster a more well-informed City and <laughs> county. So I'm um, excited to share more with you in a minute. This is Woman Being, where we explore thoughts and opinions and have the freedom to change our minds. Without expectation or judgment, we will hold a safe space and support each other as we navigate together in the form of feminine. So Annalise, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's really an honor that you chose to come on, and we're super thankful and excited to hear what you have to say. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, we're excited about this. Um, I think I just want to start off asking you, or you can tell us a little bit about what led you to start a career in journalism and and eventually to founding Shasta Scout. Yeah. So journalism as a field, I think, is often misunderstood. You know, a lot of people have concerns about journalists and what qualifies them to be journalists. I'm always really clear with people. I don't have a degree in journalism. Um, and I actually don't have too extensive of a history. I have about two to three year history in journalism. Um, fortunately, nationwide, about 50% of print journalists are educated specifically in journalism and about the in the other half are um, just have a college degree in something. So I have a, a bachelor's degree in um, business management and I started um, writing as a journalist a couple years ago after I served for two years on the Shasta County Grand Jury. And when I was on the jury, um, you know, a lot of people don't know what the jury does exactly, but basically we investigate local government. And um, so, you know, I was spending 30, 40 hours a week um, just volunteering, essentially investigating local government outlets. Wow. And um, the kinds of things that I was finding out as I was delving into these budgets and reading through all these meetings of minutes and thinking, oh, my gosh, people have no idea how government actually works. Mm -hmm. It was a really big education for me. And when I left the jury, the first thing I thought is, I want to keep investigating and I want to keep writing about what's happening in local government and helping people understand the inner workings of government and basically be informed so they have choices and they can be part of making the community the way they want it to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you tell us a little bit more about like what it means to serve on a grand jury? I mean, 30, 40 hours of volunteer work. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, in Shasta County, um, the grand jury, so you, you can put in a volunteer you know, application and there's this huge screening process and interviews and all of that. But basically, the jury, you can get paid a stipend of $15 a day, you know, wow. um, just like a regular jury. <laughs> um, 
So it's mostly retirees, but I was in a transitional phase of my life where I couldn't commit to a full-time job, but I also had a lot of energy and a lot of intellect that I wanted to use. So that kind of drew me to it. But yeah, so basically, you know, the inner workings of the jury are super secret and confidential, but what you do as a team of um, people is you decide what you're going to investigate. And the public can submit complaints, essentially. So you could say, you know, the city manager is corrupt, or you could say, you know, they're wasting money in the fire department or whatever you wanted to say, right? And and then the grand jury can investigate that. They can also just choose things to investigate based on their own research. So basically what grand juries do is they just do a lot of watching what's happening in the public sphere and then looking into it. You have a lot of power to investigate. So you can you can basically request any document you want from government, whether it's publicly available or not. So all of these internal documents that like most of the public can't get hold of, the jury can. Wow. You can also call anyone as a witness to interview before the grand jury. And so that means, you know, the police chief, the sheriff, every city manager in Shasta County, every council member, and you can ask them any questions you want. And they are supposed to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, you take minutes and notes from those interviews, and between the data you're collecting, you know, the all the paperwork you're looking at, there have been you know, grand jury investigations into, say, you know, water management practices. So they're looking at exactly how much people are being charged. They're looking at the minutes of the local public meetings, but then they're also looking at, like, emails of the water district officials behind the scenes. Oh, wow. what did they really say? Those kinds of things. And wow. then they're calling those people mm -hmm. in and saying, the public says this. We see your budget says this. You said this publicly, which contradicts your budget. Those kinds of things. Now, we can't, like, publish those entire interviews, so mm -hmm. every grand jury member has all these secrets that they've learned, you know, that will <laughs> never come out to the public. Oh, interesting. What we do is eventually we write, if we vote as a body to do so, we write a report on the subject. So let's say on water, we might do 12, 14 interviews. We might look at thousands of pages of documentation, and eventually it's all compiled into a report that might be 10 or 12 pages explains to the public what we found, and then makes recommendations on what we think should be done. Those recommendations are then basically voted on by whoever is over that jurisdiction. So um, that's where it gets tricky, is that the jury doesn't really have any power mm -hmm. to make change mm -hmm. other than to sway public opinion, because right. eventually whoever manages the water district can just say, we disagree with your findings. <laughs> sure. Um, and that's that, that can be really frustrating to people. And that's partly, I think, why I, I came away from it going, okay, but swaying the public opinion, people have no idea that they could run with those results. Mm -hmm. When we report something, they could then take that and do something with it. And journalism's the same way. Mm. You know, you just report the truth, and it's up to the people how they handle it. Wow. Yeah, because there's, like, an element of, oh... The grand jury is reporting that our water maintenance is mismanaged or whatever. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the people can then go, hmm, we, let's protest this. Let's, you know, mm -hmm. like, I don't know, recall the city water manager. I don't know if that's a thing. <laughs> but, you know, like. Yeah. Vote they, someone in vote who's going to advocate for water or stuff. whatever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in this sure. hypothetical. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many actions people can take, and even just keeping it in the public eye, 
writing letters to the editor, bringing it up during campaign elections. You know, there's so many ways you can stay involved with it and kind of keep on top of it. Wow. That is so fascinating. And part of me now is like, you kind of like, it's like working for the Vatican. Like you got to see everything you wanted to see. And I'm like, so fascinated. Um, She's signing up for the grand jury now. I'm I'm literally now, I'm making $15 a day now. (laughs) Um, But that's really cool. I'm really curious to know how has the local community responded to your work? Um, Do you experience pushback? What has it been to try and gain trust with the community as you start, you know, pushing forward and creating something like Shasta Scout? Yeah. Um, So basically Shasta Scout is entering this this news media um, community in Shasta County, right, where we have um, other newspapers. We have the Record Searchlight, which is a very old newspaper. It's been around for a long time, mm-hmm. and it has quite a few dedicated local reporters, which is a really huge benefit to our community to have local people. It is owned by a very large group that has papers all over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how that's affected people is basically generally they're seeing less local news and more regional and national news in their paper, and that's been really frustrating to people. We also have a news cafe, which I used to write for Donnie at a news cafe, and, and that's another kind of local news source um, that is more mostly opinion, um, kind of a little bit of a blog-style kind of opinion. Um, so as we've kind of entered into that, like our job is to kind of convince the community, like this is who we are, this is how we're different, mm. um, and this is why the community needs us. We are not advocating for pushing out any of our competitors, you know, um, or trying to monopolize the market because... What's happening in news media is we need as many good journalists as we can in Mm -hmm. every community. Um, And so it's good to have more of us. Um, But yeah, so as we've kind of come in, that's one thing we had to keep in mind is stay in our lane. You know, what are we good at? Well, our main focus is investigative reporting. Mm -hmm. So going a little bit deeper. And that that has a tendency to annoy people, (laughs) Um, much like being a grand juror, actually. you know, usually officials aren't thrilled to be called in to answer questions from lay people. Mm. Um, And the same thing is kind of true, you know, when you contact leaders in the community and you're asking them hard questions. Um, It's it's not popular. Mm -hmm. Um, And even with, you know, local, um, just locals who read our, our work or whatever, it's not always we popular to report certain things. People just tend to back one thing or the other. You know, if you back the blue, you don't really want me to write about police accountability. Mm. Or if you're, you know, really st- strong on, um, you know, crime accountability, you don't really want me to write about the needs of the unhoused or things like that. Mm-hmm. So generally there's, um, there is pushback. There's quite a bit of pushback. And I think that's pretty typical in journalism mm. overall. <laughs> yeah, that's super fair. Yeah, I mean, totally right now, for sure, I feel like n- news media specifically just has a really bad rap. Like, there's not a lot of public, I don't know, approval of just news in general. Like, people Mm -hmm. default will say, yeah, I don't really trust everybody, you know, like, but then there are some who are kind of like, I don't know, it it just feels like a weird time. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's always been this way, and it's just because it feels heightened due to current circumstances. But, yeah, like, it feels like the... um, the trust and 
appreciation for the establishment of journalism in general is kind of waning. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. You know, with Trump's presidency, there were a lot of calls to defund the media and sometimes media would be, you know, kind of targeted at some of the Trump rallies by attendees. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing with like um, QAnon kind of thought. A lot of it is like mainstream media is dangerous. They're part of the conspiracy and that kind of thing. So um, so definitely, like, I att- have attended local events where people are wearing defund the media shirts or, you know, mm-hmm. send the media home or um, sometimes even kind of threatening types of um, shirts. So, yeah, it's a big thing, I think, now more than before, although mm-hmm. it's always been a little bit of a polarizing issue whether or not you trust a journalist. For yeah. sure. For sure. Um, I'm curious to, like, ask a little further because um, we live in a very faith based, focused, dominant community. (laughs) Um, And how has that influenced the type of feedback you've received? And how do faith and the local ongoings kind of intersect or bleed into each other? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, definitely like Shasta County overall you know, I kind of call it the Bible Belt of California, you know, or yeah, part of it's the like the Bible, Bible hat, maybe, because it's on the top. I unfortunately <laughs> call it Calabama. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I mean, it's, you know, it's an area, and, and for me, it's really important to appreciate that those are the people we have here, you know, mm-hmm. because they're my audience, and they're the people I'm serving. So mm. um, when, when I think about this area, I think definitely, you know, conservative, mm-hmm. a lot of evangelical Christians, um, a lot of people who whose faith guides them in life. We also have Bethel, obviously Bethel Church, which, you know, they say their attendance is around 10,000, which is 10% of the city of Reading's total population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is very unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a lot of calls nationwide and even internationally from people curious about Bethel and my mm-hmm. coverage of Bethel because... Um, because a city of this size with a church of that size is so unusual. Yeah, like mega churches are usually in huge cities, cities where they exactly. have the population like to pull New from. New York and Austin. Yeah. Not Austin, just Texas in general. <laughs> it's like the land of mega churches. Yeah, yeah, but. it's true. So I think, like, we can't, I, I cannot certainly ignore that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Bethel Church being as big as it is in a town this size. And then, of course, Bethel Church also has, you know, a theology that that they call Seven Mountains Mandate, which essentially says, you know, we want to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And we're going to do that through um, infiltrating the seven mountains of society to bring them into alignment with what God wants. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, it's really important to remember that, you know, if you're somebody who believes in that theology, that's a really positive, powerful thing to do because you're bringing your city into the best place it can be. Mm -hmm. But if you're not part of that community, it can be scary to hear someone say that, you know, that a lot of people call that theology dominionism. People get really nervous that we have a city council member who's also a Bethel elder, Mm -hmm. that... Bethel's nonprofit runs our, you know, local um, civic venue where we have all our concerts, that mm-hmm. we have a charter school that has a lot of connection to Bethel as well. So there's all these kinds of concerns about the separation of church and state and mm-hmm. to what extent that kind of theology is, you know, taking over in mm-hmm. Reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really, really important, like, balance for me as a journalist is to kind of interrogate that. You know, there's nothing wrong with people of faith 
acting out their faith in the public sphere, that's part of having a faith, you know? That's our First Amendment right. Exactly. Freedom of religion is a part of why we are happy to live in the United States. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for most people, their faith drives their their behavior in life. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not just a Sunday thing. Mm -hmm. It, It determines a lot about who they marry, how many children they have, and what kind of work they do, what they do on their off time, all those things. So having an appreciation for all of that, but also an appreciation that, you know, for other people, um, too much of like what someone else believes is God's way of living Mm -hmm. introduced into the public sphere can also impinge on their constitutional rights. So Mm -hmm. it's really looking carefully at that and not taking sides, um, listening and being open to all perspectives, but just reporting the truth and reporting it in the context that matters. So when you hear just report what somebody says, that doesn't tell the whole story. You have to say, this is what they say, and here's the historical context. Here's how people who are marginalized feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, here's here's what's happened in the past. Here's what that's led to. You have to add all of that context and analysis to make it meaningful. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to do that, yeah. Love that. I think from our connect that we had with you before recording, the thing that stuck with me the most that you said is, as a journalist, what I'm grappling with constantly is um, who are the people? Is it the majority? Is it those that are loudest? Is it those that are here the longest? And I think being in a very religious-centered community, that's the question I've been asking myself is like, okay, who are the people in this situation in the greater the greater area of Shasta County? I yeah. think that's a really important, really beautiful, good question to be asking. Yeah, our tagline at Shasta Scout is stories that build democracy. So Mm. our goal is that we want to tell the kind of stories that help the people to build the kind of democracy they want. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, they need to be informed. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they need to be informed about how elections work, about who's running, about all of the big players. They need to understand how power works. Mm -hmm. And Big churches like Bethel are part of our power structure in Shasta County, and that's why, you know, monitoring them, being a watchdog is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's our goal is empowering the people. You know, knowledge is power, power to the people, right? So, um, you know, it's really important for people to to have the information they need to make the choices they want, whatever those choices are. Mm. Yeah, so I think what's so interesting, too, about living in such a faith-based community is I... As a deconstructing slash recovering evangelical Christian, um, have found myself asking, why do I actually think it's my job to tell other people how to live their lives? Right? Like, I have set up my own bounds, if you will, or were raised to have a set amount of beliefs and boundaries that, like I said earlier, I'm deconstructing now. But Um, My question to myself has been, why do I think it's my job to dictate or tell other people how they should live their lives? And as I approach my vote, government, whatever that looks like, I don't know that it's um, necessarily good or healthy to be um, trying to make society look the way I think God wants it to. I'm like, "Mm, I think if you're really coming at it from a biblical perspective, God will work all things get together for good regardless. So maybe I just come and support from the, the standpoint of what's going to be the best, most beneficial way for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, nationwide, a lot of people are leaving Christianity, especially mm-hmm. younger people. 
And I think a big reason for that is um, kind of exactly what you're bringing up, that, you know, we tend to make a God in our image, and then that God tells tends to tell us to run things the way that looks good to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of like a reinforcing circle, right? Um, when we view God one way, we see God's commands one way, and then we interpret them that way, and they tell us similar things to what we've been raised in and what we've believed. And unfortunately, you know, the church in America, the evangelical church in America is run primarily by white males, you know, so that necessarily means a lot of the structures of religion and faith are centered around mm-hmm. the perspectives of white males in leadership. And um, and so that's where we have to be really careful that, you know, when somebody says, this is what God wants earth to look like, that is not what a white man wants earth to look like, but that, that you know, that vision is honest and open mm-hmm. to every every kind of human mm-hmm. um, and that there aren't things entering into our political or social life that that crowd out you know parts of our community that mm-hmm. need to be heard and that haven't been historically heard so that's definitely part of what we're looking at you know is um, who's speaking and what are they saying and how does that how does that impact people who are um, not white or males or in one of these privileged groups you know mm-hmm. yeah it's almost like a, a level of ignorance like intentionally because because if you feel like you have the perspective of what god wants Mm -hmm. essentially and there are minority voices that are not being heard there's almost no point in listening to them because you already have the answer Mm -hmm. and therefore like they can say whatever they want but like they just don't know because they're not you know they haven't ascended to your level of thought yet Mm -hmm. right like yeah it's the it's the tricky thing about the absolute truth behind religious belief is, and again, I have a real appreciation that, you know, when somebody is teaching that or living that out, that their belief is that it's best. And Mm -hmm. that's why they're doing it. You know, Mm -hmm. they're not probably seeking power and control and to make the world like them. You know, they're, they're just trying to live out the faith that they believe in that they think is best for everyone. But it's interesting because we've exported that faith all over the world, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's been a big part of, you know, colonialism and, Kind of how, in some ways, we've taken away from some of the the uniqueness and diversity of cultures. And mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, they believe that, you know, whoever God is, whatever the divine looks like, that that, that divine is very, very um, multifaceted and that the uniqueness of cultures and genders and all of that reflects that God. And so unintentionally, maybe we've taken a little bit of that vibrancy away. Um, And I think a lot of people are pushing to bring that back now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you said something really interesting um, about like the way that people view God and how that impacts um, then how they respond. So like, I think you said something along the lines of like, they're viewing um, God as an image of themselves. Um, and there's like this concept, I don't know what, like the, if there's like a name to this concept, but I've heard theologians, uh, talk about it, which is like this idea of like the super being versus the hyper being versus the ground of being versus God as event, um, which are like different ways of viewing, like, um, I'm learning. Deity. <laughs> yeah. No, it's super fascinating. It's slightly tangential, but I'll just try to explain it really quickly to get across the point that I'm trying to make. So like the super being is like basically God is a bigger version of ourselves. So we are God essentially. Um, and then 
hyperbeing is um, God defined as like elemental or um, so like the Bible uses that, like the Christian Bible uses that in the terms of like um, God being a cloud of smoke or being in the wind. But it also uses the super being and talking about God being essentially um, superhuman, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And then ground of being is the idea that sort of everything arises from God. So like God is this ultimate source of all things. Um, and uh, everything that you say about God and that sort of becomes like symbolic. It's almost like um, uh, it's it's de-objectifying God or deity. Mm. Uh, and then God is event is like... Um, sort of like using God uh, as a way to personify um, sort of like things that are typically seen as good. So like love or justice or freedom or things like that, like God is those things. Um, so we saying the Christian uh, religion, God is love, mm-hmm. right? So anyways, all those things to say, like when we look at God through one lens, which is that God is just essentially a bigger version of ourselves, then God is can only be distilled down to um, decisions that make sense to us and our political decisions and our social decisions and the way that we use our money and the way that our church operates is then based off of like what we as people would do rather than um, maybe what a more multifaceted view of God Mm -hmm. would produce. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that, and in some ways like, I mean, this is getting into the weeds a bit, but like in some ways, the idea of just looking at God as like this super being, um, this like superhuman um, is a bit like narcissistic because people <laughs> are flawed. Um, mm-hmm. But like the I, I think it's very interesting that you you brought that up, like people are seeing God as like an image of themselves um, and. Uh, that really cha- like the way that you would think the way that you would vote mm-hmm. is really affected if you see God as that versus if you saw God as just love mm-hmm. or if you just see God as the source of all things mm-hmm. or maybe you see God as all of those things mm-hmm. and then that really informs the way that you're going to vote and make all sorts of decisions right. as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you mentioned we as people that can mean like we as people can sound very holistic and inclusive, but oftentimes it's more so we as people in this specific context that I live and understand. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, like, silos begin happening in communities where minorities are unheard, the loudest voices are heard, whether they're a majority or a minority. Mm-hmm. You know, like, the the church c- can have lots of power. The church can have a little bit of power. It depends on which one, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, too, because, you know, if you think about charismatic or Pentecostal types of churches, which, which Bethel falls under that category, there's a belief that God speaks to us now, mm-hmm. today, and he's speaking to us, you know, about our, our issues now. So if I want to know, you know, how to vote in the California governoral recall election, you know, I can ask God about that, and God will tell me. And so... That's really interesting because depending on how we're actually hearing, you know, are we hearing from God or Mm -hmm. are we hearing from our imagination? All of these things matter, right? Because otherwise, you know, big political movements can be driven by feeling God told us to do this. And if we look historically, God telling people to do things has frequently led to genocidal kinds of behaviors, you know, which obviously we're not seeing here, but... Um, it's just something that historically, when we look at the context, can be dangerous. 
in so many ways uh, right now in our culture, everyone is experiencing a different version of reality almost, <laughs> it seems. <laughs> like totally. there's, there's so many um, uh, things that I hear that people believe um, when they consume different news outlets or different media outlets and it is so radically different from what I'm hearing Mm. um and that's something that's sort of a phenomenon that I feel like has been um I don't know if it's been increasing in the past few years or if our awareness of it has been increasing in the past few years um or if it's magnified specifically by like technology um I know that, I mean, if you've seen the movie, what is it, The Social Dilemma, the so- is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, we watched it and talked about it on an episode of season one of the podcast, if you want to listen to it. <laughs> but uh, in that, they talk a lot about, like, the ways that social media have brought people into these, like, isolated, um, like, uh, sort of digital traps almost, trying to think of the best way to say it, um, where they only receive very specific types of news Mm -hmm. because they've been put into like a niche and then they just get more and more of it and it gets more and more sort of radical and people get more radicalized because of it. Um, But all of that to say, there's a ton of polarization, right? Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear, like, what your thoughts are on, like, all this increased polarization in the world. And then also, like, how do we, how do we remedy it? <laughs> Give us the solution. No. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. 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 answer to this question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, how do people, like, face the news and, like, getting information in a way that's, like, helpful. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, On the Shasta Scout social media pages, we try to repost all the research that's coming out about how people polarize. It's really fascinating to see how, like, for example, your Facebook news feed is going to contain the things that reinforce your current beliefs, Mm -hmm. whatever they are. And Mm -hmm. um, we also had a really interesting opinion piece that was written recently by um, a local psychotherapist um, that was about polarization and where he explained psychologically the phenomena of within a few seconds of meeting somebody or reading something or seeing something, our brains are just evolutionarily wired to make a decision, threat or safe. Hmm. And as soon as we've made that decision, all these other things kick in. So Mm -hmm. when we see a color or a symbol or a headline or a kind of a person that we view as threatening, it's then everything we learn from there is colored by that. Mm. So I think that's so important to be aware of because it doesn't just happen to conservatives or liberals or Christians or secular people. You know, it happens to all of us. It's part of kind of how we're made and, um, you know, how our internal makeup is. And so we have to we have to be aware so we can respond. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what he was talking about in the opinion piece is essentially the idea that in order to combat that, we have to humanize the people around us, that we have to notice, first of all, that we're othering somebody and then or or a concept or an idea or whatever, um, and then we have to find a way to, to see that person or that idea as having some merit or some redeeming quality, you know, f- seeing it as more full faceted. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's really beautiful because I, I do think that it's tremendously important. You know, 
I spent four years living in the bush in Uganda on the Congolese border. And, you know, the most amazing thing about that was just realizing that people are people are people and that all the things I thought America had to offer impoverished people and Mm -hmm. in a developing country, you know, um, is kind of ridiculous in some ways because, you know, they were happier and more peaceful and more grounded than Mm -hmm. me and than most of the Americans I knew. Um, So the more we can see people or ideas that are different than us and open our mind, you know, not that we have to accept everything, but what's driving that? You know, even when we see a criminal, right, and we're like, okay, the crime was wrong, definitely. But that person is still human. You know, it, when we see an unhoused person, instead of looking at them as a problem, how can we see their humanity? Mm. And I think, you know, at Shasta Scout, part of the reason we believe in a local news media organization that has, you know, embedded into the local community is we want to develop that. You know, I want to go from, you know, far right to far left rallies and meetings. And I want to talk to people as if they're people. And I want to tell the truth about what they say. And I know nobody will ever be fully happy with what I report regardless, but I want to see them as human and I want to help their community see them as human. Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't mean we'll accept any kind of behavior. You know, Mm -hmm. there's still accountability for your actions. Um, But, but everyone's, everyone's got something that we can see that's worth seeing. Right. And, Mm -hmm. Um, the more we can see them in their full spectrum of humanity, I think that breaks down that that silo effect, the polarization effect that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's the remedy. I mean, one thing I've noticed as well, and because I've had conversations with people who are particularly skeptical and paranoid about the news media, is um, mainstream media, MSM, whatever you want to call it, um, is that I feel like there's a lack of education surrounding media ethics as well because I mean so I have a journalism background I think I've talked about this on the podcast before I graduated with a degree in journalism and we had to take a class or several classes and this was like a common discussion topic in terms of like how do you report something like you like there are certain things that you can say and that you can't and your job as a journalist is not to spout your opinion your job is to research ask good questions and like like you were saying earlier put them in a context that makes sense and that's informative and provides like a good overarching look at the issue and even like little things like putting the word alleged in front of um Mm -hmm. i don't know a suspect an event whatever is incredibly important because if it hasn't been like proven to be one way or the other you have to clarify to the mm-hmm. audience like this is alleged this is a mm-hmm. um this is a claim this is um something that people are assuming or believing but not necessarily something that has been confirmed to be true mm-hmm. and specifically around the issue of like trump's how he lost the election and there were many people mm-hmm. who who claimed that he actually won the election and that the election was rigged or whatever. Um, it, it just seemed like news media's outlets on both sides went one way or the other, where um, the right-wing news was saying, Trump has won the election. Like, this is fact. This is truth. And 
left media I noticed was oftentimes saying completely false and baseless claims that are absolutely not true under any circumstances that Trump has won, you know? And so it felt like they both were like, nope, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to say completely opposite things. Mm-hmm. And that was really confusing for a lot of people as opposed to talking about the issue in terms of, hey, there's actually a claim that our election is rigged, which is a very serious accusation. Mm-hmm. And so it was like discourse like couldn't even happen because people were so unwilling to like discuss it on any level. So anyways, all that is to say, I think that there's like a lack of understanding um, surrounding what good journalism means and um, and like how to interpret that when you're reading an article or a news source. Because it seems like some people will get, will feel like the word alleged, for example, is inflammatory um, when it's actually intending to be um, clarifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Truthful, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. And then, but yeah, I love what you said about that human element. But I wondered, it seems like in that human element, that's where our feelings and like emotions and subjectivity can come in. Because we want to love people and assume the best or or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered, like, how do you balance um, keeping things really human so that we're not othering people while also kind of trying to withhold those ethics of journalism and staying neutral and being balanced and, you know, making sure that you're not pushing one agenda? I mean, there's always going to be a bias in every person. But, like, how do you find that middle ground? Yeah, I think it's an ongoing challenge for every person who's writing or editing or producing the news, and it's something we have to continually be self-monitoring and growing in. Um, I think a good example locally has been, you know, some of the public statements that have been made in our Board of Supervisors meetings um, over basically, you know, COVID restrictions, masking, our businesses closing, You know, state of California obviously has been pretty um, restrictive during the COVID um, pandemic. And for a lot of locals who are much more conservative than the California government overall, you know, that's felt a real betrayal of their rights. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, you know, I want to understand how that feels. You know, I want to understand how it feels to feel like your business is at risk or you know, your constitutional rights have been betrayed by a politician you would never have voted for. And maybe the majority of your community would never have voted for. You know, I don't think Shasta County, um, you know, majority of Shasta County wouldn't vote for the governor we have, right? Um, So we can definitely see that humanity aspect and really seek to understand it and write about it, right? What does it mean to be constitutionalist? What do people mean when they use that term? Mm -hmm. How has this affected their lives? Let's get their stories. Mm. But then at the same time, you know, a lot of the statements that have been made in a public setting in Shasta County um, have gone viral nationally because there have been threats of violence and, Mm. um, you know, people essentially calling for the potential of a civil war and saying, you know, if things don't change, that they're willing to, you know, fight in the streets and Mm. So those kinds of statements, you know, while we can say I, I can I can understand where you're coming from right. and I can report on what you think is wrong with the COVID restrictions and I can report on constitutionality and all of those things, which are very important to do. 
um, because that's representation, you know, that's the people having a voice. Um, but at the same time, for me, you know, you, you have to draw a line at threats of violence and mm-hmm. say that, that that's actually not okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so then that cuts complicated in terms of how do you refer to people, you know, mm-hmm. um, the Department of Homeland Security calls people who threaten violence over issues like this domestic extremists. Mm-hmm. Do we call these people extremists in our news media organization? You know, why or why not? Mm-hmm. Um, do we do we call people QAnon conspiracy theorists or do we say that they believe in QAnon? You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, these, are, difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. these are those, you know, very tricky um, and, and maybe it doesn't feel tricky to someone else, but you know, imagine what it feels like to be called an extremist when you feel like you're fighting for what you believe is right. Yeah. And then at the same time, imagine how it feels to be to have somebody who's threatened your life just be called an activist. You know? yeah. So, you know, both ways, there's going to be really strong feelings. And that's where we have to go. Like you said, you can't be just feelings based about it, you know, where you have to go back to, you know, what are the facts about what kind of speech is protected about, you know, what public discourse looks like, how what the Constitution was meant to to offer and provide to us and all of this historical analysis. And then how did these kinds of statements make, you know, less privileged people feel or minorities or how, you know, like even if somebody doesn't believe in COVID restrictions themselves, maybe they have the means to get COVID and get better. Mm-hmm. And then there's other people who don't have health insurance or don't have access to a hospital or have yeah. a pre-existing health condition, you know, so... Have yeah. the ability to leave work, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. paid time off or, you know, whatever yeah. that is. That could be, like, hugely yeah. detrimental, potentially. Yeah, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So going back to, like you said, you know, that fact-based stuff that's, like, what's the context? What's the historical precedent? What do legal experts say? You know, um, how how are public meetings meant to be run? What laws govern pu- public meetings, etc.? Mm-hmm. You know, we have to look at those kinds of things. Otherwise, I can just decide this person's an extremist, and then I call them an extremist, um, or I can decide, you know, I don't really want to call them an extremist, and then I don't call them, and either way can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. So um, I do think it's really complicated. Actually, at Shasta Scout, you know, we've been doing a lot of research into how people are labeling, um, you know, individuals that are involved in far-right and alt-right kinds of movements and how they're choosing to label those people, why they're choosing to we have something called style guides in journalism, you know, which is yes. essentially a guide that tells you, you know, when we use the word indigenous, we always capitalize it. Or, mm-hmm. you know, when we use uh, the term black, you know, black person, we capitalize black. And so the same thing holds true. You know, we have to have certain guidelines for when we use a word like extremist or terrorist or those kinds of things so that we're treating people fairly across the board and we're not just applying them willy nilly to people. Right. That's yeah, it's not an easy line to walk. And, like, there's so many nuances. Nuances. <laughs> there's a lot of nuance yeah. to um, representing people fairly and giving um, giving equal, neutral, I don't know, service to the community, right? Because, I mean... At the end of the day, like it is a service that you're providing mm-hmm. is yeah. is helping to inform the community so that they can they can vote well and they can take action in their community well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, in such a polarized society, where do you start? I don't know. <laughs> That's a great question. But yeah. I mean, like the important thing um, that I hear 
what you're saying is it's the wrestling, I think, that um, separates uh, true journalism from hysteria or hysterical journalism. I don't know if I would call it that, but like reactionary opinions yeah, and know. reactions and just like writing what you think down, you know, mm-hmm. like um, and, and that and that element of journalism, I think, is missed when when people are more comfortable listening to a YouTuber talk about, you know, health decisions than they are mm-hmm. like official experts in mm-hmm. in the field. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's also why, you know, there's a big push in news media to separate opinion stories from news stories. Mm. Um, because if you tell the news through an opinion lens, nobody knows which part is news and which part is opinion. Yeah. So, you know, as an opinion writer, you can call someone an extremist or a jackass or whatever you want to call them. Um, but as a news writer, you need to call them their title mm-hmm. or an appropriate adjective, you know, that's, that has some kind of a legal definition or an ethical definition that can be agreed upon. So that's definitely something we're big on at Shasta Scout is separating news and opinion, really clearly labeling them as different um, and making sure our readers are really aware this is opinion or this is news. And if it's an opinion piece, you know, sift it, decide what you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if it's news, you should be able to trust it. Uh, that it's that it's factually true and that it's evidence backed. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting talking about like opinion um, articles or whatever you would call them versus like actual hard news because I think to some extent like like sh- I know that like a lot of news outlets will label like this is an opinion piece and or like have like you know a little title there or whatever, but like. Um, how much is the consumer actually paying attention to that? Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do journalists and news outlets like make sure that that is super clear to the consumer, but then also how much is just the responsibility of the consumer to actually understand what they're looking at? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I know like that people will read an opinion article that's labeled an opinion article and take it as fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's an interesting thing to walk because it's it's looking at that that tension between sure there's the responsibility of the writer but also there's the responsibility of the reader mm-hmm. to be like informed and understand what they're looking at. Yeah. And like you were talking about with YouTubers. Yeah. You yeah, know, that's where we had to be thinking about the source of what we're reading or learning from all the time, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, the information coming out about misinformation, a lot of misinformation is coming from people who don't really have like a news or a journalism platform, but they're trusted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's also one of the really interesting things like locally, say with a group like Bethel Church or um, some of these political activists locally, um, if they're trusted, if they have somebody who's, you know, well-respected and charismatic then a lot of times, you know, that person has more sway and authority yeah. over someone than, like, you know, the news article that I took three days writing, you know. Totally. Um, that's discouraging, but I think that is part of the journey of what we're developing in terms of a civic news media organization is that we also have to educate the community, you know. We're hoping in the future that we're going to be developing, you know, like a whole team of 
volunteers who will do things like attend public meetings and tweet from them and just tell people what's happening. No editorial, no commentary, you know, just getting people involved to realize like actually the work of reporting on your community is boring a lot of times and hard and you know, it, it seems easy at first. You hear some statement and you're like, oh, well, I'm going to write a story on that. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, now that I look at the documents and the data and the budgets, it's a lot more murky. And now that I've talked to two people on opposite sides, I don't even know which one to believe. And that's kind of what we want people to understand is like anyone can tell you anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to sort out the truth. And mm-hmm. that's why journalism is a profession. And that's why it costs a lot of money and it's labor intensive and why mm-hmm. we have to fund it as a community um, because somebody has to do that work. Mm-hmm. And um, we're not as good at it as individuals <laughs> as we think we are. You know, yeah. like we're just like, well, I read this article on Facebook. Like, well, who wrote it? Yeah. Or like, what source was it mm-hmm. from? Like, I'm not sure, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm like, okay, well, or how that, old I is that source? Or yes. You know, you know, exactly. so many things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a complex world. There's so much information out there. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I know for myself, if you do the Enneagram, I'm a one. So I have a high value for truth and correctness. But also there's a lot of gray. And so I feel like every conversation I have specifically in the workplace, I'm like, well, I don't know. I read an article that said this, but I don't know how true that is. And everyone's just like, but you just said this. And I'm like, well, yeah, but like I haven't cross like referenced that. I haven't done all these things. And they're just like, well, you read an article. So it sounds Mm -hmm. great. And I'm just like, no, (laughs) that's not how it works. But thanks. Well, and especially we mentioned like people who are trusted, like Mm -hmm. either prominent members of the community or celebrities or YouTubers that have a large following. I think that there's there's just a it's just not necessarily in people's awareness that that Mm -hmm. person has not made a commitment to looking at all sides of the issue before making a statement or delivering their opinion. And so when we hear from whatever makeup artist that X brand is, you know, throwing plastic into the sea and we're like, well, I like him and I've learned a lot of things. So I just believe point blank that that's true. And I'm going to vote on this referendum to cancel that corporation. I don't, this is like, total, I'm making this up. It's like, oh, so it's getting really wild. But um, <laughs> like, we're not, cons- we're not considering like, oh, well, is this person like checking their sources and like where did they learn that information and like yeah. what is their personal commitment to providing as accurate information as possible or are they just like saying things? Mm-hmm. And I don't think we think that. I don't yeah. think we think about that, especially especially in religious communities when a pastor is up on the pulpit and they say, you know, X thing about whatever issue and we go, oh, well, I heard it at church on Sunday and that's the most trusted place I know. Mm-hmm. And so this must be true. Yeah. And yeah. then we come up with other reasons. There's like psychologically the first thing you hear is what you believe to be true mm-hmm. and to um, and to recant that in your brain, you actually have to go through cognitive dissonance, which is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So if your pastor on the pulpit says, you know, Trump is president, even though he's not, you're like, oh, well, these are people that I trust. But mm-hmm. again, they're not he- they're not held to the accountability that a journalist right. is held. Yeah. And they're not holding themselves to that standard either. Mm-hmm. And so they don't even have the internal awareness that or training that it takes to like research well mm-hmm. and, you know, deliver information well. And so, yeah, that, that to me 
is concerning. And I'm not saying that every journalistic expert has to have had an education or whatever. Obviously, you haven't, but you very clearly have a value for those principles, Mm -hmm. which is so important. Yeah. And so, and then when, when money gets into the... When you throw money into the everything pot, gets everything gets a little murky. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I appreciate that about Shasta Scout being nonprofit as well. Yeah. Is, yeah. It seems like there's um, – you're not worried about them profiting off of you clicking on that article as much. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think about, too, in that, like, your wild example that you used of the yeah. makeup artist with the um, makeup company throwing things into the ocean or whatever um, – <laughs> The, the next consideration is like, okay, well, what if that makeup artist on YouTube um, is actually sponsored by a rival makeup brand that this makeup company that they're bashing mm-hmm. is, um, like, in competition with? Sure. And um, I think about uh, – I know that a lot of news outlets do actually have, um, like, conflicts of interest that they will – layout um, Mm -hmm. that they have. So um, one example is um, I listen to NPR News Mm -hmm. and um, they'll tell you when they're reporting on something that they actually have a conflict of interest with. So like they, I forget if But like who else will? Well, yeah, well, the thing is that in journalism, you get the benefit that they are held in that accountability. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't remember if it's, it's either Google or Amazon, but either Google or Amazon technically owns NPR. Um, or both both or have some sort of stake yeah and so when they talk (laughs) when they report on like jeffrey or jeff bezos Mm -hmm. they say this is the disclaimer we Mm -hmm. do have this bias basically because Mm -hmm. part of the reason we get our paycheck is because of this this person person. Mm -hmm. and um i really appreciate that because um it gives you that bit of insight Mm -hmm. um and you don't get that from things that aren't held accountable in that way that aren't coming from official news Mm -hmm. sources Mm -hmm. it's not to say that all news sources are therefore completely legitimate and never tell you anything that's wrong totally but you do get that like extra layer of sort of um assurance well that's another layer though because i mean npr is nonprofit. it's a public media organization that we pay for with our taxes Mm -hmm. and they have sponsors and Mm -hmm. so that is even even in nonprofit world, you it's healthy to have a, a, a good recognition of like where the money is coming from mm-hmm. and how much influence that donor may have. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. In the type of news that you're receiving. One mm-hmm. hundred or not receiving. Yeah. Yeah, like like even when I report on Bethel Church, you know, because I have a history of being a member, a graduate and because a lot of the work I might do around Bethel might be more expose style where I'm, you know, uncovering something or revealing something, mm. I have to, I feel strongly, you know, I need to disclose that because mm. whether you take it like, well, she's biased towards Bethel because she has friends there and she went to school there, or you might take it like she's biased against Bethel because mm. she, clearly she left, wonder yeah. what happened. She's jaded. You know, <laughs> so there's, you know, obviously it could be taken either way. There's not a clear understanding of what the bias might be. Mm-hmm. But just by telling people that I'm just saying, you know, hey, I'm acknowledging that I'm walking into this with a history that's relevant. Mm-hmm. And you should know about that history. Yeah. And however you take that history, however it chooses to inform you, you know, I don't share my whole history. Mm-hmm. But, um but that's something that I feel like the audience deserves to know if I'm writing about money. You know, I obviously, if I was a student, I've paid money to this church. So me writing about money, you should know that 
that I've previously given money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, so those kinds of things I do yeah. think are important. And I mean, there's different codes of ethics that different news media outlets use, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons like that you will see some disparity. Like News Cafe doesn't clearly label news an opinion. Um, so mm. that has caused confusion in the past. Mm. Yeah. Um, and like at Shasta Scout, we follow the Society of Professional Journalists um, Code of Ethics, which has a lot of specificity. So like I don't even let people, you know, pay for a Diet Coke for me or yeah, a salad Yeah, that was one thing me. I was going to bring up. Mm. Like, you're not even supposed to accept gifts. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, not even, like, you know, people are like, I just want to, you're interviewing me, like, let me just buy your lunch. And I'm like, you know, mm. technically I'm sure it doesn't matter at all. Right. But I just, it's just a habit because mm. even that little thing, like, they bought me lunch can yeah. kind of make you feel more inclined towards somebody. Totally. You don't want that. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a form of self-protection. And, I mean, it's protecting your community, essentially. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm protecting you by not allowing you to curry favor with me. Yeah. yeah. And I'm protecting myself by, not by like, helping keep my own biases and internal world as clear and free as possible because mm-hmm. you're human. Yeah. <laughs> um, to, to not end up, you know, reporting poorly because I trusted somebody I shouldn't have. Mm. Yeah, and another thing that, you know, comes up a lot in our community is people who will try to do something unbiased, you know, in a journalistic setting. But then, you know, online you can see all their opinions, right? And people forget, like, we can all see what we're all saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I obviously have my opinions. I vote. You know, I I have beliefs about how the world should run. Yeah. But I don't share them in public forums at all because um, otherwise people won't be able to trust me. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm getting involved, like, yeah, I don't think they should have said that either. You know, even Mm -hmm. if I'm not writing about that story, it's very clear that I'm committed to a bias and that I'm willing to be vocal about it. So it's kind of like this line I have for myself. Like, I know there's a place inside of me that is allowed to have political opinions and vote. Right. That's one of my rights. Some places, actually, some journalistic endeavors don't want you voting either. Um, but they usually have wow. rules about whether you can put campaign signs up in your yard or, right. you know, discuss your views on social media. And, and for me personally, I think, you know, unless it's a closed private account, we don't want to be discussing our views on social mm-hmm. media because it can ostracize parts of our audience and mm-hmm. and also kind of reinforces, um, you know, a side-taking kind of mentality. Right, because that could, mm-hmm. even with... Uh, a side of your audience that potentially agrees with you if you get something wrong and they are inclined to trust you based on political party affiliation then that is not setting them up them up for success to be critical media observers either mm-hmm. yeah. so it, i mean it can be harmful they could just take you at your word because yeah, yeah. without like cross-referencing you and whatever yeah because you're you're the same belief totally mm-hmm. and yeah, that, so it's essentially you have a power like it gives you power over people, not over, but in an influence in a people group that agree with you, mm-hmm. essentially, because yeah. of being a journalist. And, and so you lose influence in a people group that doesn't exactly. agree with you. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm so sorry. I got us on a whole side tangent, but I loved it. <laughs> Every second of it. Um Annalise, to echo back to something you said earlier, I really loved that you said um, – People are people are people. 
I've been going through like a Brene Brown resurgence. Um, I love her so much. Renaissance of Brene Brown, all things Brene Brown. Uh, She actually has two podcasts. I would highly suggest checking them out. Um, But I really love, she said at one point, um, to make sure to keep people human in your eyes. And uh, a great way to do that is remembering that everyone has a story that'll make you cry. Mm-hmm. And if you really listen and really ask good questions, everyone has a story that'll bring you to your knees. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an easy thing to lose as we approach really hard conversations, as we approach that, um, you know, politics, <laughs> fill in the blank, um, <laughs> religion whatever you choose to name, that's something that is easy to lose. And so that's something I've been meditating on and thinking about very a lot recently. But um, yeah, it just makes me think of just a soft, almost feminine way of approaching things. And I, I'm a big believer that we all have a little bit of feminine, masculine, and everything in between. Um, but I'm curious to know how... how the fact that you're a woman has played a role in your journalism, um, how it's affected the opportunities you've had or lack of opportunities or maybe bulldozing your way into some opportunities. <laughs> I don't know. Um, how has that, has it affected it? Has it played a role? And what has that looked like? Yeah, um, definitely in news media, being a woman is still underrepresented. Mm-hmm. So um you know, a lot of times that means being taken less seriously um, or even just the fear that you will be taken less seriously, which can also be very self-defeating, you know, that For imposter sure. syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's something that I've talked to my mentors a lot in news media about, you know, and actually, you know, they're like, Annalise, your, your biggest challenge is not that you don't have all of these skills. It's that it's really easy to not believe you're worthy of this role, you know, oh, and wow. Um, I think that's something that everyone can experience, but I do think as women, um, a lot of times we're more primed for it. Um, I know for me, you know, I came from a, I come from a conservative, um, religious background where, you know, women's role is in the home and, um, women don't need education. And, you know, I think that, that in some ways still affects me, you know, my, my ability to take up space in the world. Um, and it, and it affects me, um, sometimes in harmful ways, obviously, but also think gives me a lot of empathy, um, for what other women are experiencing. And that's definitely one of the big advantages I think of working as a female journalist is at least for me, you know, a lot of the important stories right now do revolve around women, um, and, you know, non-binary people and, um, transgender people. And so, Mm -hmm. um, being somebody who has often felt like my gender was a negative, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a setting. It's real life. Um, yeah. Yeah. It has enabled me to be able to listen well and to understand well, and even to like position my stories differently than a man would. Um, like right now I'm working on a sexual harassment story um, that's really complicated and long. And it's, it's been very many months of, you know, getting all the documentation we need to publish. Um, but throughout that, so much of my role as a journalist is, you know, to maintain a healthy distance from my source, um, but also to, you know, be aware of their humanity mm-hmm. and to realize that, you know, having a story published about something very personal and 
very painful in your life is um, takes a tremendous amount of courage. Yeah. And supporting them, realizing that, you know, they they need to understand timelines and they need to understand steps and who's going to see this information and who's going to hear about it. And I think as a woman, you know, just those complexities of, say, a sexual harassment story, realizing that, you know, it's not just like rape or something really graphic or violent that can harm us. You know, it's long patterns of mm-hmm. experiencing things that that take, you know, undercut us at the knees, you know, that knock down mm-hmm. our confidence. You know, m- most of us women have experienced that. And I think it's hard to even tell the men closest to you how it's affected you, you know, yeah. <laughs> how much this little thing that happens over and over at this age or in this job just made you think something about yourself or mm. about your abilities. Yeah. And so trying to capture some of the nuance of that and look into how the law does or does not protect women, how culture's changing around how women's women are viewed, you know, how, how what you wear matters or doesn't matter oh, when it comes to assault. Yeah. It matters. Oh my you god. Know? So um all of those kinds of complicated things. I mean, I think I feel very grateful to be addressing that as a woman because I'm able it's like we talked about with representation you know I'm able to give a different more nuanced more powerful voice to somebody um because I understand that I think um also safety you know as a journalist being being a woman I mean stereotypically you know I think women do have a little bit more safety concerns um than Mm -hmm. men do sometimes I know that's not across the board Mm -hmm. um and it's nuanced but for me, certainly, there are settings here in Shasta County where I'm followed and filmed and recorded and um, get threats. Um, wow. And that kind of stuff, as a woman, is I think is harder. Mm-hmm. I think the threat of sexual violence, um, although it does happen to men, certainly, for women is like... I think just this constant feeling that <laughs> it's a raw spot, yeah. you know, it's like poking an open wound, you know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. And it feels a lot more tangible and real when you as a female either have experienced or know people. Cause I don't I mean, yeah. I think most women either have experienced or know someone close to them who has experienced something like that. And so, yeah, yeah it's very Absolutely. tangible and it, and it doesn't feel far away or, Faceless. Yeah. It feels close. Yeah. Yeah. And even just, you know, physically, again, it varies by individual to individual. But, you know, many women are a little bit smaller, a little bit less muscular than many men. And, you know, that physical differential is a factor as well. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the people who do film or photograph or record me or follow me are men. They're big men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, you know, I have I have safety plans. I have a safety team that's worked with me. Um, I have a security consultant that um, has given me a lot of important information. And anytime I'm going into a higher risk setting, um, mm-hmm. which is typically an on-the-ground reporting setting where I know that there are people that are tremendously hostile to the reporting I do, I have, a, you know, I have security checkpoints. I have somebody monitoring my location. I have a lot of different things set up um, and protocols wow. for when I report anything and who I report it to and how many people are aware. Mm-hmm. And what I've been told by security experts is essentially that's the most important thing is for people to know you will report. You mm-hmm. won't hesitate to report and you know who to report to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's that usual thing when you're walking in a dark alley, look like you're 
strong and powerful and don't look like a victim, you know, unfortunately, is part of our role as women. Um, So that's that's something I always do. I mean, nothing terrible has happened, but, you know, I'm a mom. I've Mm. got four amazing kids and, um, you know, their safety is is obviously what I'm most afraid of. Totally. You know, having threatened. So that's my biggest fear is just making sure that I'm doing everything I can to make sure they're safe and that nobody who gets really angry, mm-hmm. you know, oh would take gosh. it out on them. So, yeah, yeah. Oof. it's getting me fired up. But yeah, that is that's something that um, I've thought about as as a woman in pu- in the public eye that um, is involved in issues that or reporting on issues that people feel really um, strongly about. Like mm-hmm. all it takes is you know one person that makes a bad choice. Mm-hmm. And so I can't imagine that feeling, but also so much respect to you for um, choosing to do it, choosing to do the work and um, servicing the community. Like I honestly, that's the one of the best things about journalism. They do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is why, to me, it's a labor of love that you can trust. Like you can trust that source. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, and I mean, it, it's important to remember, you know, I'm a cisgender white female so Mm -hmm. that is two Mm -hmm. huge levels of safety and that I bring to my work Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the reasons it's so important for for me to stand up is you know I do have more safety than someone else might have in Mm -hmm. similar setting so it's important for me to be able to put myself out there and you know, and do that work where somebody yeah. else might be even less safe to do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even if you think, too, about being in the United States, like, Absolutely. being a journalist in some countries is basically a death sentence. Absolutely. And um, in Afghanistan right now, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. there's, there's so many nations where it's nearly impossible to be a journalist and mm-hmm. not constantly fear for your safety in a very real life-or-death type of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, I guess all this is to say that, like, um, not to say that, like, obviously safety concerns that you might have are valid and, like, Mm -hmm. are um, worth, like, you know, talking about, but also, like, we are very lucky to live in a nation where your job as a journalist doesn't put you in a position where um, you have to literally go into hiding or you have very real death threats, Mm -hmm. um, that are constant Mm -hmm. (laughs) from a group like the Taliban or in countries in Latin America where, um, where like drug cabals are, are dictating whether or not journalists get to live. And Mm -hmm. so there's, yeah. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. You know, there, there are some security concerns, but overall, Yes. Mm-hmm. We're in such a good place, such a safe place to be doing journalism, so mm-hmm. much so, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this, Annalise. Like, uh, it's been super informative, and um, I really enjoy listening to you process your thought process towards mm-hmm. journalism, towards the founding of Shasta Scout, and um, your intentions for this community. And I think, in general, like, just... Uh, the purpose of journalism as a whole, like why why we have freedom of press and why it's so incredibly crucial to our nation and our democracy. Yeah. Um, and uh, we asked this question to all of our guests, and uh, we've prepared you for this, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wanted to hear from you what uh, woman being means to you. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, I talked a little bit about my experience of being a woman um, and how it does influence me every day. Um, but I think uh, coming, at, as I said, out of this background where what being a woman was, was very defined, you know, um, where a lot of women wore head coverings even, and, you know, didn't wear, um, pants because, you know, (laughs) too masculine. Um, one of the things that I really take as far as, um, woman being right now is that there's just this really wide spectrum of experiences and expressions Mm -hmm. of, like you talked about, femininity, Um, of gender in general, you know, how people identify and how they express that identity. Uh, I've been learning a lot about, um, you know, how my, I do identify as a woman, you know, as a cisgender woman, um, but I've been learning a lot about how differently everyone is expressing um, Mm -hmm. their gender and how many people incorporate aspects of woman being into themselves, whether they're biologically female or not. Um, so for me, it's really, again, I, I talked about earlier, like that spectrum of humanity, you know, the, the idea that, you know, whatever you believe in, as far as a higher power, you know, that, that there's all these facets of humanity. And so when I think about woman being, I think about, it's amazing how many different ways there are to express, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. femininity, to express gender, to express womanhood, whether you, you know, have children or don't have children, whether you marry or don't marry, whether you're gay or straight, you know, transgender, non-binary, all of those things, um, it's it's beautiful to embrace all of it, you know. Um, so for me, it's kind of like I, I know who I am, but I, I'm almost more interested in seeing all the other ways to be woman, you know, mm-hmm. um, and to be human. And that, that, you know, whatever you, however you refer to yourself, you know, it's just one aspect of humanity. So... It's a journey. It's been a long journey for me, you know, kind mm. of coming from women are allowed to lead and women are allowed to do things, mm. you know, coming out of that restrictive background to yeah. to now saying, you know, I don't know that being a woman is the most important thing to me anymore because mm. it's more about humanity to me um, and mm. not limiting ourselves into gender roles or gender expressions, but being whoever we are, you know. Mm. <laughs> being whoever we are. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Simple. Yeah. And then uh, I know you have some resources to share with us and some plugs on where we can find you on Instagram, social media, wherever, um, and your website, that sort of thing. And then also how we can help Shasta Scout or what kind of support. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So our website is um, just www.shastascout.org. Some people ask, why are we called Shasta Scout? And we just say, because we scout out the truth. Um, (laughs) That's kind of, you know, how we think about it is like, you know, I think of myself as like an emissary from the people. You know, I go into the government buildings and I search through the files and I talk to the scary people (laughs) so that that you can learn the truth. You know, I'm your scout um, sent out into the bureaucracy and the wilderness of (laughs) rallies and protests so that I can carry a message home to everyone to help build democracy. Um, and so we're also found at, at Shasta Scout on Twitter, Facebook, um, and Instagram. Mm. And we do have um, a weekly news roundup. It, it's free to just subscribe. We're, we're never going to have a paywall at Shasta Scout. Um, mm. We will always be um, completely free. 
that might mean that we fail. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's the tricky, the tricky world of um, learning, you know, what's going to work in this new environment with news media. We know that what's being done now isn't working very well, and that's why, you know, in papers like the Record Searchlight haven't done that great in the last five to ten years. But we're trying to build something new, and that is something that's community-driven, that's participatory, where people mm-hmm. feel like they own the news. You know, they're part of this. And that's really what we need from people. Um, you know, it could be donations. It could be giving 5 or $10 a month. Um, but a lot of it is also just sharing the stories, following us, mm-hmm. um, giving us tips. You know, you can share tips anonymously or you can share them on the record. And we even have, like, secure ways through Signal and Proton Mail, where if you work for the mm-hmm. government and you want to drop us a file that you don't want anyone to see, you know, it's Thank completely you. secure. Um so there's like a million ways to participate from, you know, showing up to a public meeting for us or um, donating or sharing a story or just reading along and telling us what you want to see more of. But our goal is we really want people to see this as like the people's media, you know, mm-hmm. that we're we're not here. You know, I I don't pay myself um, and I don't have any intention to pay myself. I'm doing this as a community service. Eventually, my successor in three to five years will need to probably pay them. <laughs> um, so that's eventually will have to happen. But, um, you know, because I'm not profiting off this, it for me, it's a good way to start it so that people know this is the people's media and we're committed to the people and we want the people to be part of it, part of building it and part of growing it and all of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love that. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Yeah, I keep saying thank you because you're great. (laughs) It's so awesome to have you. And actually, in light of this conversation, it reminded me that when we started this podcast, we often, and maybe we still have done this, I don't know, we we give the disclaimer of like, this is not some, like we are in a discovery mode in this podcast. There is, it is conversation. There's not um, necessarily weeks and weeks of research or or, uh, writing and thoughtful checking all the sources that necessarily goes into these. It's really just conversational. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's a great thing to just remind our audience that woman being is is not that source. And so if you hear something on here, it could be wrong. And <laughs> please, yeah, please check your sources. Please yeah. be an informed um, participant. Yep. And uh, we, we really appreciate um, all of our listeners. And um, you can follow us at woman being on Instagram. And our (laughs) website is womenbeingcommunity.com. And yeah, all of your amazing support is great. Give Annalise a follow or (laughs) Shasta Scout a follow. And uh, yeah, tune in. So that's all for today. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank you. you.